Who do you want to be as a leader? What are the blind spots you're missing? If you had a magic wand and you could change anything about your workplace, what would you do with it? These are the kinds of questions we explore on Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt. I'm a keynote speaker, emotional intelligence coach, and leadership trainer who partners with executives and emerging leaders who want to achieve extraordinary results for themselves and their organizations. You're in the right place if you're ready to cultivate the self-awareness to be the leader you were born to be. Let's go on this journey together. Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt, and I'm super excited for another amazing guest. And today we're going to be talking with Alan Stein Jr., who's a keynote speaker, author, and performance expert who teaches proven strategies to improve organizational performance, create effective leadership, increase team cohesion and collaboration, and develop winning mindsets, rituals, and routines. A successful business owner and veteran basketball performance coach, he spent 15 years working with the highest performing athletes on the planet, including NBA superstars Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry, and Kobe Bryant. His newest book is called Sustain Your Game, High Performance Keys to Manage Stress, Avoid Stagnation, and Beat Burnout. Welcome to the show, Alan. Oh, it's so lovely to be with you. I'm looking forward to a fun conversation. Yeah, me too, Alan. And uh, it, and I'm learning a lot more in sports through your book, and I, I appreciate it so much. And, you know, as a starting point, I think your journey has been quite interesting. And um, there's going to be times where I'm going to talk about some of the concepts you bring up in the book and how you've done it and reinvention and things like that. But I'd love to give the audience an opportunity to learn a little bit more around your story, your journey, what got you to the work you're doing in the world. Sure. So basketball was my first identifiable passion and I fell in love with the game at five years old. And I'm so grateful that here 40 plus years later, uh, basketball is still a major pillar of my life. And I say that because I'm, I'm so thankful that I've been able to not only make a living, but, but make a life around something I've been so passionate about. And for the first portion of my life, um, I was a basketball player, uh, was able to, to be a fairly decent high school player. And then I played at Elon University down in North Carolina. Um, at that time in college, I started to, to have uh, a newfound love for strength and conditioning and fitness and mindset and nutrition and everything that went into the performance work. So when I graduated from college, I thought what could be better than combining my original love of basketball with my newfound love of performance training and I became a basketball performance coach and I did that for 15 years uh, specialized mostly at the middle school and high school age level because uh, I felt that's where I could make the biggest impact. But then that led to some work with some of the players that you mentioned in my my bio so um, I've been able to, to have a really uh, amazing journey from the game of basketball. And then in the most current iteration, five years ago, I decided to pivot out of the direct basketball training space and become a corporate keynote speaker and author. But uh, anyone who's consumed my content or, or, or heard me speak or read the books knows that I, I do that through the lens of a former performance coach. So yeah, my stuff is riddled with sports analogy, analogies uh, and taking these principles that have such high utility that I learned through the game but I show folks how to apply those to, to their business or, or to their lives in general. 
Yeah. And I think you did such a great job of doing that in the book. And I mean, there's so much amazing content that I feel like we could do 10 different podcast episodes and all of the different information because it's great. And I I highly recommend the book. Um, But as a starting point, there's a reason why you put it into three sections around the perform, pivot and prevail. So talk to us a little bit around what made you come up with these three sections and why do you think they're so important? Well, before I answer that, to take one step back, I just want folks to know that, um, so I've written two books at present. I've written Raise Your Game, came out in 2019, and then Sustain Your Game, the follow-up, which just recently came out. And, And I'm always writing the book that mirrors what it is that I'm going through in my own life at that time. And and, and in essence, I write the book that I need to read myself. And and the reason I do that is I find it um, both enlightening and therapeutic to really dive deep into the areas that I'm struggling with the most. And uh, of course, now I do that. And the reason I put it in book form is I do that to be of service to others. I mean, I, I figure, you know, if this is something that I'm struggling with, certainly I'm not alone, that there must be other people that are having the same difficulties. So anything that I can uncover and learn in that writing process, I want to be able to share with others. Uh, I've always believed that a a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. And and that's really how I describe my work. My goal is to help light other people's candles. And I certainly know plenty of people have helped me light mine. And and for that, I'm grateful. So uh, the reason that I, I wrote Sustain Your Game in the first place was because I was struggling with stress, stagnation, and burnout. And uh, I also want to make the disclaimer that I'm not coming from a place of mastery. You know, these are still things that that I find challenging. You know, some days I I do a better job with managing them than others, um, but I'm still on the path and I'm still on the journey. And and I can say with great confidence that I'm very proud of the progress that I've made, but I'm definitely not a, a completed work that belongs under museum glass. Like I will be a work in progress for my entire life And I'm okay with that. That's actually where I derive enjoyment is through that process. And uh, as I was diving into these concepts of stress, stagnation, and burnout, um, it it just kind of came to me that that they occur over these different timelines that that for the most part, and, and obviously it's not this compartmentalized, but for the most part, each of us is trying to battle stress in the moment, you know, the day to day stresses that we all face. Um, that over kind of a midterm, which I could describe as anywhere from a couple of months to even a couple of years, um, when we reach a certain level, it's very easy to put on the mental cruise control and start to stagnate. You know, it's not that we're hitting rock bottom, you know, but at the same time, we're not really growing or evolving. We're just kind of towing that that line. Uh, And then I found, and and I have experienced that two different times in my life, uh, pretty extreme burnout. Uh, and I look at burnout as being more of the long term, as in, you know, an accumulation of stress and stagnation over a couple of years. Uh, but it is important to know, you know, I'm 46 years old. And the first time I experienced burnout uh, was in my early 20s as a basketball player. So I don't want folks to think that burnout is only something you experience, you know, in your 60s and 70s after you've been working for a full, you know, a full lifetime. You can experience burnout at any point in time. And, you know, I really encourage the younger generations to be aware of that so that hopefully they can sidestep some of the landmines that, that I've stepped on. Yeah. I love what you said there. I think it's so important that, um, it's journey and it's an evolution and it's never done. And I think it would be pretty boring if it was done, right? Like that's part of is constantly growing and developing. Um, and, and I, I say the same thing. I'm like, I'm writing this not only for you in a place of service, it's to remind myself 
of these same things. And I find even, I'm sure you've experienced this with coaching too. When you're with someone, you're like, Oh, mental note, what just happened there. I needed to hear that as much as my client needed to hear that. Oh, absolutely. And, and the reason I love this work is it holds me to a higher level of accountability. Um, one of my, and, and I, I, I use, I can't think of a better word than fear. It's not a fear that keeps me up at night, but one of my fears is that someone will see me acting in a way that is not congruent with what I share stage or what I write in my books that, and, and I recognize that I'm fallible. I'm flawed. You know, I'm going to make some boneheaded decisions. I'm going to have a lapse in judgment. I'm allowed and give myself permission to have low moods. But one of my biggest fears is that someone sees me, you know, on stage preaching a certain mindset and attitude and belief system. And then a couple hours later catches me in a low moment where I'm not living in harmony with that. And, and I'll ultimately be a hypocrite in that person's eyes. And while I'm not striving to live a perfect life and I give myself permission to make mistakes, uh, I, I take a tremendous amount of pride in being very authentic and genuine and, and who I am and, and what I believe on stage is what I use as the code to guide my life. And, you know, so this holds me to a very high standard. And, and just as you said so insightfully, you know, there are times when I'm stuck in a rut or I'm, I'm anxious about something or something, you know, I'm disappointed and I start reminding myself of the things that I share to others when they tell me that's how they're feeling. And, and that's actually been incredibly helpful. Um, I know that, you know, previously to doing some of this work, like many other high performers, uh, I was incredibly self-critical. And that when, when I didn't perform at a level that I believed I was capable, I would kind of pile on the criticism, the self-criticism, and, and then start to stack shame and guilt on top of that. And it was this very unhealthy cocktail. Uh, so what I've learned to do is I'm, I'm getting better at speaking to myself the same way I would speak to a friend. You know, if, if you called me up tonight and said, Alan, I, I had a really rough day today. You know, I, I got in an argument with a, a close friend uh, that that proposal I submitted got denied, you know, like you had a rough day. The first thing I would do would, would, would lead with some empathy and some compassion and do my best to comfort you and let you know, hey, I know today was a rough day, but I also know you're strong enough to overcome this and I believe in you and I know tomorrow will be better. You know, I would do everything in my power to comfort you as a friend. I would never start to pile on the criticism and say, well, yeah, no wonder you got an argument with your friend. You said something stupid. And, oh, I know why you didn't get that sales. The sales proposal didn't go through. You did some pretty shoddy work. We'd never in a million years do that. So I need to make sure that I'm talking to myself with the same grace and compassion that I would speak to you. And, and um, I'm much better at that now. And even when I'm, I find myself being a little critical, I have an awareness where I catch it really quickly now and I can course correct. Yes. I think what you're saying is so important. I say the same thing. Talk to yourself the way you would talk to somebody you love. Um, yeah. There's two things that I heard with what you just said there are super important. I hear you having a very strong value of integrity. And so that self-integrity that you're doing, what you're saying to others. And I, it is actually something that I see a lot of organizations actually struggling with in terms of they have the values. Um, but when we talk about the behaviors that are associated with those values, we're not actually seeing those acted out. And um, let's talk about that now, since it just happened to be showing up. I know yeah. for myself, part of my role is actually to be the one that holds up the mirror and has some courageous conversations and says, I hear you saying this, 
but the behaviors and the actions of what you're doing currently in the organization, especially I see this a lot at the top with senior leadership, um, but even in the in the day to day in terms of what's being supported, what's being celebrated, what's being acknowledged, um, we're tolerating some behaviors that are very out of alignment around the values of the organization. Um, so I, let's just go there for a second. And you know, when you talk, what do you think about that when we talk about creating high performance organizations is about also having values based behavior. So what do you what do you want to see more of? And what do you see in your work in terms of when organizations are getting it right? And when they're struggling in this area? One of the words that's thrown around a lot in popular culture today, both in sports and business is the word culture. And I choose to define culture as an alignment between, as you just said so beautifully, uh, beliefs and behaviors. You know, organizations that are crystal clear on their beliefs, which we could also say are core values, and their behaviors from every person in the organization as consistently as possible are aligned with those beliefs. That is a group with a really strong, high-performing culture. Uh, if you have a group that, that has crystal clear beliefs, uh, but their behavior is not in alignment with that, that is a very low performing culture. And then, of course, if you have groups that don't even have clarity on what they believe, you know, they're, they're already behind the eight ball. So it's really the alignment between the beliefs and the behaviors, uh, and that ultimately will create experiences uh, and it's the experience that your people feel, your colleagues and your coworkers, as well as the experience you provide for those that you serve, your, your customers, your clients, your patients, your members, your subscribers, whatever. Um, but the experience they all feel is a direct byproduct of the alignment between the beliefs and the behavior. So um, to me, that's what's most important. And, and it's been my experience that almost every organization has a set of core values right. and, and, you know, but the question is whether or not they're living them and whether or, not, whether or not they're being modeled consistently. And the most important part is the living and the modeling part. It's easy to come up with a list of five core values, great words like integrity and, and creativity and accountability and, and put them up, you know, uh, in the wall in the break room or even behind the front desk where the receptionist is and easy to put those on a trifold brochure or put those on your website, but they're meaningless if they're not being lived out. And what I've noticed with high performing organizations is not only do the leaders model those things, but they care enough to hold everyone accountable to them. And every single behavior that every single member of your team exhibits on a daily basis, either through what they say or what they do, can easily be put into one of two uh, buckets. It's either something you accept or it's something you need to correct. There is no gray area. Now, if what the person says or does is in alignment with your beliefs and your core values, that is something you accept. So you want to acknowledge it and you want to praise it because that which gets praised gets repeated. If someone in your organization says or does something that is not in alignment with your core values, you need to care enough to, to coach them up or to correct that behavior and let them know that, hey, this is not how we behave here. Um, let's, let's find a better way. Or I believe in you or I care enough to help you, you know, correct this behavior. So when you can get to the point that you're crystal clear on your core values and you hold everyone to the highest standard of excellence of accountability to them and you either praise them and accept it or you coach it and you correct it, that is, that is basically the framework for a high-performing organization. And this doesn't matter uh, if you're a, an MBA or an NFL team, or if you're a, an entrepreneur with a startup, uh, these principles have such high utility that they cover both, both bases. 
And I, I'm sure you experienced when you were working with sports teams, you saw those sports teams that were behaving like that and the impact it had, like they were winning championships because they were creating that environment. And I try to help um, make this understanding for organizations so often that like, it is going to have a huge return on investment for your company. You are going to be more successful when you do this. Um, but I, I have to tell you, Alan, and I'm, I'm curious about your experience. I still see, I still find a lot of organizations are not understanding the connection around, first of all, people first, right? Like being able, cause everything you just talked about is also around a people first approach and to have a people first approach, a gap that I see is how are you helping your leaders to develop these skills? Because some people, individual contributors move up into leadership they don't even know how to do the mentoring and coaching and to give constructive feedback in real time. So how are we also supporting them in order to be able to be set up for success? Oh yeah. There's so much gold in what you just shared there. And absolutely. And it really in any organization, as you said, it does need to be people first and people driven. And a good portion of that needs to be the, the development and the evolution of the people on your team. I mean, you know, the, the kind of the life cycle is if you can start to create, and let's just call it because I come from a sports world, let's call it a winning culture or a championship culture, but this is very true in business as well. When you start to create that, you will attract the type of people that want to be a part of a high-performing culture. You will attract the type of people that are not only aligned with your core values, but they want to be held accountable to them. They want someone to correct them and coach them when they mess up, you know, and, that, and that's incredibly important. So uh, while you'll still need to be on the hunt for talent and you'll still need to recruit, it's amazing how much you'll, you'll just attract the type of people that want to work for you. Like I'm willing to bet if you look at some massive brands, you know, whether it's a Nike or, or Disney uh, or Facebook or Google, you know, uh, while I'm sure they keep an eye out for some, some talent, can you imagine the number of, of incoming inquiries of really talented people that reach out that say, you know what, uh, I, I love the Disney brand. I feel aligned with what you all do. I want to work for Disney, you know, so you, you will attract those type of people. And then once you've attracted them, then you need to train them. You need to develop them. You need to coach them up. You need to help them grow. And when you do those things, you'll automatically increase your retention with those people. You know, if, if you show people appreciation, if you, if you give them a crystal clear role that is, you know, mirrors their strengths so that they're making a maximum contribution to the team, they'll want to stay. And ultimately that's the goal. And then for those that choose to leave, it'll usually be for a reason because they have a better opportunity and that's okay. That is part of the, the business life cycle and you should wish them well and even give them an endorsement. What we want to be very careful of is people leaving um, because they're unhappy, because they feel underappreciated, because they don't feel like their team is committed to a high performing culture and they want to work somewhere that, that does. So, yeah, that, that part is, is so important. And I've always believed and, and, you know, this is true in sport and it's true in business that if you take care of your team first, they'll take care of the customer or the client. You know, I tell when I work with head coaches in sport, I say, if you take great care of your assistant coaches, your athletic trainer, you know, your managers, they'll take care of your players to a higher degree. So it is about serving those people uh, first. And it's kind of that that trickle down effect. And a good portion of that service is helping them grow and evolve, because that's when we as human beings um, feel happiest and most fulfilled 
is when we are growing, we're developing new skills, we're, we're you know, enlightening our mindset. So yeah, you absolutely have to invest uh, in your people heavily. Um, and that always starts with leadership. Every single thing starts and ends with leadership. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think that when we start to think about top talent, absolutely. Those people are also telling their friends where they work and what it's like to be in that environment. Um, it's beautiful word of mouth without being asked to do it. And it's funny, you're reminding me of, um, you know, back in the day when I was working a lot on the end-to-end talent management and organizations were looking around, like, how can we really be hiring high-performing top talent? And I said, you know, I can help you to improve your recruitment process to get the right people. But let me tell you something, if they get in the door and you're not creating an environment where they can grow, develop, be challenged, be aligned with purpose, all of that kind of stuff, they're going to leave. And 80% of them are passive candidates anyway. It's like, why are they going to leave where they are to come to you? And so often, and that's why it was one of the catalysts for me leaving and doing my own business was because I said, like, this is the disconnect because we have to be looking at it from both angles. You, you can't just expect to get in the top talents and not be doing anything to help support that top talent. So I think what you're saying is, is, is hyper critical and, um, and so important. And I think in too many organizations, there's a disconnect there. Oh, absolutely. Well, a few other thoughts popped to mind with what, with what you just shared. And, you know, I just mentioned that everything uh, starts and ends with leadership. Um, and, you know, for, for leaders, uh, a couple of thoughts come to mind as well. And that is, you know, you, you can't lead your team somewhere that you're not going yourself. Uh, and the team can't become something that you're not. So this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with core values. You know, it, it's the leaders uh, need to, to certainly be responsible for getting clarity on the core values, but they have to be living them every single day. Uh, if your team sees that you have this mentality of do as I say, not as I do, that's the easiest way to undermine your credibility. People will always believe your actions over your words. And, and, and you'll be the most magnetic leader in the organization when people see you living in alignment with those core values. Uh, a good friend of mine named Ben Newman, uh, who's done some work for Nick Saban with the Alabama football team, says that Coach Saban says this all of the time. He says standards over feelings. Uh, and basically what he says is we have a standard of excellence at Alabama football, and we are going to do everything in our power to live up to that standard as consistently as possible, that as human beings, um, our, our feelings are going to ebb and flow. Like our feelings and our emotions are a roller coaster. It's part of being a sentient being. I mean, we, you know, it's, it's very easy to feel tremendous elation one moment, hear some discouraging news, and then feel really down in the dumps literally 30 seconds later. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I encourage people to embrace all of their feelings. Don't ignore them. Don't suppress them. Don't resist them. Give yourself permission to feel however you want to feel, but you cannot let that dictate how you lead and how you show up. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with feeling angry, feeling discouraged, feeling disappointed, but that can't be how you lead. You need to be consistent as a leader. And when you can lead based on standards, not based on conveniences, based on feelings, based on emotions, based on what you want, um, then you'll be a much more consistent leader. And that's ultimately the goal. And, and I had another friend who's the uh, mental performance coach for the San Francisco Giants in Major League Baseball. Uh, and he said something that I kind of knew intellectually and intuitively, but the way he said it really resonated with me. And he said, uh, our emotions are designed to inform us. They're not designed to direct us. And, and that just hit me right between the eyes and basically said, you know, our emotions are simply information and we should feel a palette, a wide palette and spectrum of emotions, 
but you can't let them dictate how you behave. Uh, and I even use this lesson as a father with my three children. I mean, I teach my kids, it is perfectly fine for you to be upset. It is not okay for you to be disrespectful or demean or diminish somebody else. You know, you're allowed to feel upset and you need to develop the emotional regulatory coping skills to deal with that. But, but that does not give you permission to be disrespectful to someone or to lash out or demean or diminish or treat someone poorly. Um, so learning that balance of it's okay to feel this way, it's not okay to behave this way goes back to what we were talking about with, with core values and living those things out. And again, the organizations that get this stuff right are the ones that thrive. And, and I also need to make this disclaimer. Everything that I'm sharing right now, these are very basic principles. I mean, I don't think any of your listeners, their head hasn't exploded. Uh, and even all of this stuff, you know, I've shared with my children who are 12 and 10 years old and they conceptualize it easily but not a single thing that I've mentioned so far is easy to do. None of this stuff is easy. And I, I want to make that distinction because people often use the word basic and easy as if they're synonyms. Yes. People use those words interchangeably and they do not mean the same thing. These are very basic principles. I mean, what it takes to run a fortune 100 business is very basic. It is not easy to do. That is why it is incredibly competitive and very challenging to have a successful business. So it's important that folks know the difference. You know, getting crystal clear on core values and getting an entire team to buy in and believe in to living them out every single day is really, really challenging to do. And it's important that we embrace that. Yes. Yeah. So you're speaking my language. I am all about the emotional intelligence. And so I loved your chapter that was on poise and was talking about self-regulation and self-management. And I think that's that where some people don't make that, um, they, they miss that. Whereas of course we're all about permission to feel you need to feel. And a lot of people are not feeling and they're pushing it down and they're plowing through. And that's actually not what we want to do. We want to actually give space to be with emotions. And you, you talked about this beautifully, um, in the, in the book in lots of different ways. I loved, we should talk a little bit about your meditation journey. Cause I, my high performers, I all try to get them on meditation as well. So I loved your journey there. Um, but yeah, it's around being able to be with the emotions and process and release them. Yes. Yeah. But not directing them at other people. And I talk a lot around conscious leadership when you're above the line and below the line. And so when you're below the line, it's happening to me when you're above the line, it's happening by me, right? So now you're taking responsibility and ownership. Yeah, I'm feeling the emotions. And what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to take care of myself and be conscious of how I take action? So I'm responding instead of going into survival mode and reacting and saying things that we regret afterwards, because yeah, you're having a biological response and you talked yeah. about this as well. Like, yeah, it's going to happen. You're having the biological response. Your nervous system is doing what it's doing, but how do you build tools and learn how to be able to support your nervous system to make better choices? Oh, yes. And, and the, the key word you just said there at the end is choice. You know, that, that we have the choice to respond thoughtfully instead of react emotionally. And uh, what, what I found, and, and this is something, you know, I told you that I write the books that I need to read myself. I mean, you know, I'm 46 years old. For, for 41 or 42 of the years that I've been alive, uh, I reacted through emotion. You know, when I was upset, uh, I would lash out. I would be disrespectful. I, I would act like this is happening to me. Um, and it wasn't until I, I, I came to the, the realization that, you know, I get to choose my response. 
and that, that it's okay when things happen in the world that aren't to my liking, they're not my preference, um, that's okay. It is not the universe's job to conspire to make me happy. You know, <laughs> The world's just gonna do what the world is gonna do. It is my responsibility to be intentional and have very thoughtful responses. And to me, when you can respond thoughtfully to adversity, to challenge, to something that does upset you, um, then you're really on the path to just a more enlightened approach. And once again, I, I'm far from perfect in that regard, but I'm very proud of the progress I made there that with minimal exception, there's not much that rattles me this, these days. Now there's plenty of things that, that I get disappointed by, get upset by, get angry by, but they no longer dictate my behavior moving forward. And they no longer dictate how I show up for those that I care about. And, and that's what I'm proud of. So to me, I just want folks to have the awareness that whatever default reaction you've been having uh, is a choice. Now you may have conditioned yourself for so many years and decades that you feel like it's automatic. Like it, you feel that if you get stuck in traffic, you have to get upset. You have to white knuckle the steering wheel. You have to honk the horn because that's how you've programmed yourself to behave. But I'm here to let you know, you don't have to do any of those things, you know? And, 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 and again, I don't live in a fantasy land. It is not my preference to be stuck in traffic. I would prefer to have all green lights and no one in my way, but I realize that that's not realistic. So when I'm stuck in traffic uh, and I start to feel myself getting a little irritated and agitated, I can simply take a deep breath and say, look, I get to choose how I'm going to handle this traffic. Um, and I can choose a, a negative response that actually, you know, biologically increases my stress. And the only person it punishes is me. Like the other people in the cars have no idea that I'm even upset. It's not doing anything to improve the situation. All it's doing is making my life more miserable. Or I can choose to say, you know what? I prefer not to be stuck in traffic, but this is the reality. I accept the reality. Uh, I'm going to call the person I was meeting and let them know I'm a few minutes late. And then I'm going to and fill in the blank, enjoy some stillness, call my mom, listen to a podcast, meditate, you know, whatever it may be. And I'm going to fill that gap with something that's a more thoughtful, intentional response. And, and I'm, as I said before, uh, I'm, I'm getting so much better at, at being able to do that now. Yeah. And it really is so life-changing when you start to realize what you can and can't control. And then, so all of a sudden you recognize, oh my gosh, so many of those times that I was experiencing all that stress was actually me trying to control something that was actually out of my control. Traffic is such a great example is resisting. It's resisting reality. It's resisting what is. And, and so I, this brings me, I, I would love for you to share because I know some, you were somebody was a little bit skeptical with meditation at first too. And I know so many of my clients when they're like, yeah, I'm just, I'm not that person. And so often, and you describe this in the book, it's their idea of what they think meditation is that actually holds them back from doing it. And I think it's such a disservice because it really is training your brain and you start to become more aware of your thoughts because we're going to have 60,000, 50, 60,000 thoughts. They're not going anywhere. We're yeah. just not going to get hooked the same way, or we're going to be aware of the story and the narrative. So, and, and I know you've done such a great job and you've been consistent once you got into it. So tell me about you um, really embracing meditation. Well, it started with, and you just teed that up so beautifully is the acknowledgement that 
I see the world through a very biased lens, as everybody does. I see the world and it is heavily biased based on my age, based on my race, my gender, where I grew up geographically, who I was raised by, who my friends were, the coaches and teachers I've had, what I read, watch and listen to, who I follow on, on social media, what I watch on Netflix. You know, all of this stuff is, is shaped. These are all the inputs and these inputs directly dictate and shape the outputs. And it's important for me to acknowledge that. And, and with that should give me a very high level of empathy and compassion that other people are seeing the world through their bias lens as well. And that I need to have more patience and tolerance and be much more inclusive of the way other people see the world, you know, because the way I see the world is not right, is not good. Like I, that has walked every step that I've walked. And um, so being able to do that, it, it opens the world up to me. So previously, I looked at things as good and bad, right or wrong. You know, oh, meditation, that won't work. That is not good. That is not the right fit for me. That was simply my perspective. That was not a truth because obviously I may have felt that way, but then somebody like yourself, your truth and your perspective is, is meditation is incredibly helpful. It's a great you know, uh, way to practice mindfulness. So um, I've come to the realization that the vast majority of things that we all deal with and we all discuss in our lives are not truths. They're not facts. They are all perceptions and they are all perspectives. Uh, and that's really, really important. So is meditation good or bad? That's in the eye of the beholder. You know, anyone that reads my book, is my book good or bad? That's in the eye of the beholder. There, there is no truth to that. Um, so once I kind of let go of this idea that something has to be good or it has to be right or it is a truth, it opened the world up to me. And that was when I was able to embrace meditation. Um, and uh, at first, and this is where my practice has really evolved. At first, it became something I had to check off of the to-do list. I need to follow Headspace 10-minute guided meditation this morning. And as soon as I do that, I check it off the box. And and I do believe that was a decent first step. It at least got me considering meditation. It got me practicing. It got me consistent. But the problem was I would do it for 10 minutes and then I would not be very mindful for the rest of the day. Um, so very similar to physical fitness. Um, I now try and be much more mindful throughout the day. So yes, most days I start with a 10 minute guided meditation to kind of lay that foundation. But then several times throughout the day, I try to embrace some stillness or connect to breath, or just be quiet, even if it's just for 30 seconds. And you know, if, if I'm waiting in line at Target and the cashier is really slow and I'm feeling a little antsy and agitated because I'm in a rush, I think, wow, what a beautiful opportunity to practice patience, practice some mindfulness. So I'm just gonna close my eyes and breathe for 60 seconds. Um, and, and I'm sure the line's not gonna move, so I've got plenty of time to practice it. Uh, so I try and have a more mindful, holistic approach to my life. Same thing with physical fitness, you know, something that's always been very uh, important to me. You know, it, for most people, it starts with, all right, I need to work out three times a week for 30 minutes. Like we go to the gym, do 10 sets of 10 reps, check it off the list. And then the rest of the day, they're sedentary. They're rather apathetic. They're not eating very healthy. They don't get very good sleep. It's like, okay, well, three 30-minute workouts is not going to undo all of that. You need to just start living a healthier life. Try to move your body more. Try to prioritize quality sleep. Try to make a better decision nutritionally every time you have a meal. And, and you don't have to worry about checking boxes. You now become the person that you're trying 
to become. And it's the same thing for meditation. So for me, um, I'm, I'm very proud that I've progressed from checking it off the list and, and, and gamifying this daily practice to now just living a more mindful life. Yeah, it's so amazing. And I, and so often that's what I do with clients as well. I say, let's just start with a 30 day challenge for that exact reason, just to start building the muscle, building the consistency. But eventually, like you said, it becomes a practice that comes with you for everything that you're doing. And you recognize, oh, in this moment when the mind's taken over, because the, the mind is very powerful. It can make you believe this rush in somewhere you have to go. And you're like, okay, I'm noticing my body's getting my attention right now with a little bit of anxiety. Okay, I'm just gonna take this 15 seconds. I tell, I tell leaders often too, if you're noticing that you're feeling like that in your workday, stop everything you're doing and get up for your debt from your desk. And walk yeah. around for five, 10 minutes, go get a glass of water, go outside, look outside at nature. You come back, everything yeah. looks different. It does. Well, you, you'll appreciate this. When I first started my meditation practice, and I can say this with, with humility and some levity, uh, I, was, I was laying down and I was doing a Headspace meditation app and my kids were in the other room and, and I could hear quite the ruckus going on. And I basically stopped my meditation to go in there and scream at them at the top of my lungs. Well, you guys settle down. I'm trying to meditate. And then I just started laughing because that was the exact opposite response to what the practice is supposed to be teaching me. And now the good part is, and, and I'm anytime I make a mistake, I make sure that I share that with my kids. I have very high vulnerability with my children. And, you know, 30 seconds after I did that, I started to laugh and I went in there and I apologized to them and I let them know, you know, Hey, there's some irony here that I'm screaming at you because I'm trying to be calm and mindful. And, and we had a good laugh and it was a good life lesson. And, you know, I, I want my children to know, and it's not like it takes a lot of convincing that I'm far from perfect and I'm definitely fallible, but I just thought that was a, a funny moment where, you know, here it is. Uh, the reason for, for doing meditation is to become more peaceful and present and grounded and mindful so that you can be thoughtful in your responses. You can be aware of your feelings without judging your feelings and you don't get rattled and, and fly off the handle the way I did. So that was, that was one I, I remember, you know, to, to, to keep things in perspective. Yeah. And I think what you're noticing even is the checkbox exercise. And I, I had a similar situation where my son just wanted to come and say, I have nine and nine and 12 year old, and he just wanted to come in and cuddle up. And I'm like, Oh, I have to do my meditation. And then I realized in that moment, do I? Do right. I have to do the meditation right now? Actually, no, I don't. Like, this is yeah. the moment. This is the present moment where I can connect with my nine-year-old. Never going to have this moment again. Maybe I don't have to. And I think there's also times where there's boundaries and you're teaching them that self-care and it's, it's a time for you, but it's taking that pause before you actually move into that action, which I think is that you've done um, so well. I feel like, again, we could talk forever. There's so many different areas I want to uh, chat with you about. Um, something that I've, I've been very conscious of that we're seeing a lot of in organizations, a couple of things. I, I think I want to talk a little bit around the, the burnout piece, sure. um, but also the focus. And I, I like that you really spent a lot of time in the beginning talking about this because um, I think we also have to acknowledge like what goes on in organizations right now and you know, you're being pulled in all of these different directions. And while I think there's an onus on the organization in terms of 
you know, maybe we don't need back-to-back meetings and emails that go to all and mailboxes that three have 300 emails. Um, I think there's something that can be happening culturally, but I think also the individual has an opportunity to take some more ownership around, you know, what does that look like to be focused? So let's start there. And then just a little bit of talk around burnout, which I think has been even more prevalent during this pandemic. Um, and, and then again, I'm going to suggest everyone to get into this in more depth to really read your book, because I, I think you have some really, really good tools and, and information in there. Oh, thank you so much. Well, you know, we've used the word alignment several times, and, and I love that word. And, and I find that the highest performing organization, there is an alignment between the individual and the organization itself. And ultimately, what that is, is, you know, let, let's say I work for your, your, your company. What's best for me is what's best for us. And what's best for us is also what's best for me. It's this reciprocal uh, uh, relationship. And that's, uh, I think, incredibly important. And and also, and and I've always believed this, and this was always my parting words uh, to team members in high school before they would leave for the summer. I would say, if you want the team to be better next year, then you need to come back better. Like if you want us to be better next season, then you need to return from summer vacation as a better version of yourself. If you come back bigger, stronger, more powerful, more skilled with a better mindset and and the other 14 guys on your team do the same thing, we will be better by default. But it all starts with you because that's the part you have control over. So you work to train and develop yourself, then make that contagious and encourage others to do it and we will better. And it's that type of mentality uh, that I think is so important. And, you know, when it comes to the specifics of stress, stagnation and burnout, which we will definitely touch on, uh, those were already approaching record highs before the pandemic started. Uh, And I'm a believer the pandemic threw kerosene on that fire. uh, And those things are rampant now. I mean, we've seen it with the great resignation. I think that is a signal uh, of of some of the accumulated stress, stagnation and burnout, uh, and certainly a signal that a lot of people were not feeling aligned with the organizations they were working for. And uh, uh, so so with that being the, the current state that we're in, I do think leaders and organizations need to be much more proactive in helping guide folks through these things. Like they need to have programs in place um, to help their team deal with stress. Uh, They need to proactively offer professional development resources to alleviate stagnation. And they absolutely need to have systems in place and professionals in place to help folks work through burnout. And uh, to be clear, burnout um, ultimately is the misalignment of the work and hours and sacrifices you're making and the meaning you find in the work that you're doing. Uh, It's not just from working long hours, you know. uh, Now there's no question that working long hours and depriving yourself or not prioritizing self-care is absolutely a conduit to burnout. That's part of the equation. But the real flare up comes from not feeling aligned with your work, not feeling your work is meaningful, not feeling you're making a contribution, uh, not doing work that is aligned with your strengths and your skill sets, uh, not doing work that, that you're curious about or fascinates you, uh, not doing work that's in alignment with your personal core values. You know, when those things start to splinter and go in different directions, then you're at massive risk for burnout. 
Yeah. I thank you for that distinction because I I've just actually seen that with a couple of different leaders that I've supported with the burnout. There's the one piece where the hours are just ridiculous. And then these other piece where there was alignment again, there was a lack of alignment in terms of some of the behaviors that were happening within the organization in terms of, you know, some toxic behaviors and not really supporting and understanding. And when it was asked, to make changes, the changes weren't happening. Right. So Mm -hmm. that doesn't feel very good when people are acknowledging, Hey, we're all drowning here. Something needs to change. And when questions were being asked around, like, let's get a, do a retreat and get everybody together. And then the feedback was, well, we don't have time for that. Well, you're, you're making a very clear statement with that response. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, so much gold in what you just shared there. The the very first step uh, is for the organization and the leadership to be proactive in listening, in asking questions, in gathering feedback, checking in and taking the pulse of members of your team, asking what's going on in their world. How are things in their family life? Like, how are they feeling about their work? You know, the, the last project that I assigned you, do you feel like that was aligned with your strengths? Do you feel like that was something that was exciting and fun to work on? Do you see how the work you just did made a contribution to our greater good? So they have to be very proactive in that. But then one step further than just listening, because listening is not enough, then you need to act on what it is that you hear. Um, and, and this doesn't mean that that the team necessarily you know, polices the direction that you go. Uh, it is okay for me to ask for your thoughts and feedback, for you to share, hey, I think we should go on a retreat. And for me to say, well, that's not something we can do at present, but I very much appreciate you sharing that. And that is something we will absolutely consider doing in the future. In the meantime, is there something else that I can help you with or support you with so that you would feel better? Like most people can live with that response. This is not about whatever, you know, whatever the mob says that the team has to do. It's just about open listening and active listening, but then being responsive. You know, what, what happens is lots of times, you know, you gather feedback from the team or you do these performance reviews and then it just falls on deaf ears. And, and even worse than saying we don't have time for that is simply ignoring it and not addressing it at all. And you're like, well, I, I told my leader, I told my, my manager or my supervisor, I thought we should go on a retreat and I've never heard anything back. Now I don't feel heard. I don't feel valued. I don't feel like my opinion matters. So it's really important to proactively listen and then address that feedback. And then if it is something that can be done, um, I mean, that, that can send waves through your organization. If four or five people in your department say, you know, hey, we would love to be able to, to have a little retreat with our department and you can act on that and you can make that happen. Now you will increase buy-in and believe in exponentially because your people say, wow, they care about me and and I'm helping co-create this this team and this organization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's where you actually get even more disengagement and you start to have your people getting quiet where they're like, I'm not going to give you feedback anymore because I give it. I don't hear anything back about it and I don't see any changes being made. Um, And that's that's a huge disconnect. Yeah. And then they'll, they'll leave because of that. I mean, that exactly that, that is on par with feeling underappreciated and undervalued. And that is why people will leave. I mean, you know, uh, we talk about the great resignation, um, which is, you know, which is, which actually happened. Um, but there have been certain organizations that didn't feel any of that. You know, they, they didn't have anybody resign or leave because they were running type of high performance culture 
that people wanted. In fact, they gained new team members because everyone that was resigning from their other places to work now attracted to them. So uh, yeah, the great resignation was simply a byproduct of some industries and organizations not doing the exceptional job in some of these things we've talked about that uh, talked about. And, and I don't say that with judgment and I don't say that to point the finger of blame. Uh, maybe this was the lesson that they needed to learn to make these changes. So I'm, you know, I'm not saying that just because someone left an organization that they're, they're not quality or they don't have a good leader. Maybe they were just a little misguided or a little misled, or now they can refocus their lens on what they need to do to make sure that doesn't happen again. So no, no judgment or blame for me whatsoever. Um, but it is, it is a sign, you know, if people are leaving your organization, especially more frequently than new people are coming in, uh, that, that, yeah, you, you've got to change that. Yeah. It's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity yes. to take a step back and see what, what can change. Um, so I always like to give my guests an opportunity to leave a final thought, whatever is showing up for you in this moment, Alan. My final thought would be the, the results that we get, the, the, the success or achievement or, or outcomes we get are always a byproduct of our habits and our daily decisions and our daily behaviors. So there is nothing wrong with having goals. I actually believe in having goals because I think they can provide some clarity and some direction. But just keep in mind that the goal itself is not really going to change anything. Even achieving that goal is most likely not even going to cause you to feel differently. What you have to learn to love is the process. And, and you know, an adage that we would use in sport was you need to behave like a champion before you become a champion. It's not the reverse of that, which many people think that it is. So whatever it is that, however you define winning in your life, however you define winning in your marriage, in your parenting, in your business, in your community, wherever that may be, whatever you define winning to be, figure out what are the, the five or six core values or daily behaviors that will increase the chance that, that that will be the byproduct. And then focus on living those out every day to the best of your ability and do not use perfection as your yardstick. Give yourself permission to make mistakes, permission to have low moods and permission to feel however you feel, but try to be as consistent as you can and as intentional and thoughtful as you can in the responses that you make and try to live those things out. And the byproduct will be the life that, that you want to live. Mm, excellent. Excellent advice. Alan, where can people learn more about you? Uh, they can go to allensteinjr.com. That's my primary website. And then I have a supplemental site, which is strongerteam.com. Uh, that's information on my books, my podcast. I have a course and I do some exclusive one-on-one -on -one coaching. Uh, and then I'm very easily found on social media at Allenstein Jr. Um, I, I take a lot of pride in being very responsive and accessible. So shoot me a DM on Instagram or LinkedIn uh, if you want to continue this dialogue. Uh, and then you can search for either book, Raise Your Game or Sustain Your Game. Uh, wherever you buy your books or your audio books, they should be pretty easily found. Fantastic. And we'll have all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here today, Alan. Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you. And, and for everyone, wherever you are in the world right now, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. We're sending you tons of love. Bye-bye. Please remember that meaningful change requires space and grace. Practice self-compassion and become the ripple. As you transform yourself, you transform your workplace and the people around you.